Hello, this is Robbie Martin. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. Today we have a special guest, Ian Goodrum. Ian Goodrum is a senior editor and columnist at China Daily and a contributing writer at People's World. His work focuses on corporate media as a tool of ideological enforcement. He is based in Beijing. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about everything that's going on. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess let's get this out of the way. Uh, what is it like to live in China as a white guy? I mean, where are you from? How long have you been there? And how did you end up living there in the first place? Um, I'm from Texas originally. Uh, I near Houston. I mean, I you know I'm not from Houston. It's one of those things where you just pick the, the nearest large city to where you're from to make mm-hmm. it easier for everybody. Um, so grew up near Houston. Um, went to went to college in Virginia. And then after uh, after graduating, I uh, came back to Texas first. Um, I started working in smaller local newspapers, one of which being my hometown paper, um, which is where I got my start. I, I did uh, editing and, and, and column writing and features work there. Um, I, I, I've had a couple jobs in U.S. newspapers. The other one was in, uh, in Iowa. I was there for about a year and a half um, during the 2016 caucuses. Uh, and so... I was, you know, about a year and a half from 2015 to, to late 2016. Um, right before the 2016 election, um, there was a the, the the paper in Iowa was owned by Gannett, and if you know anything about Gannett, you know that they love their layoffs. And so, uh, and so in October of 2016, um, I was part of a I was part of a three percent workforce reduction. I got I got laid off right before the election happened, and so um, I was looking for a job at the same time as about 300 400 other people that previously worked at Gannett Papers until that week. And uh, I was looking, you know, I was, I was doing the, the pretty standard job search uh, and, and sending out applications, not getting much in, in terms of response. Uh, and, and it was suggested to me, and I wish I could remember who suggested it because I'd like to give them credit, but I, I unfortunately can't, that I, I might consider looking outside the country um, for something. And China was... The first on my list, it was a place I'd always I'd been wanted to visit for quite some time. But but this was like, well, there's opportunity in in Chinese media to to go and, and learn more about the country firsthand, to to live there and, and get a real experience for the realities on the ground. Um, and it, it so I sent in my it was a standard application process. I sent in my my stuff to China Daily and uh, and a few others, and China Daily was the first to respond. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the paperwork took some time to iron out. The, the visa process uh, for, for Chinese work visas is, is long, but I eventually uh, came here in September of 2017. So I've been here about two and a half years. And as far as the experience, I mean, you know, this is the thing about, you hear, hear this from people who, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, with your background, you hear this about people that work in, you know, quote unquote state media is like, well, you know, the there, there's doubt as to the courage of your convictions. There's doubt as to the, the, the genuine, the sincerity of your, of your beliefs, because, uh, the, the line in the, in the capitalist press, the corporate press is that, is that there's a, there's a good media and a bad media and the bad media, state media and people that work for it are, are dishonest, uh, sellout shills, what have you, you know, they're, they're in it for a paycheck or, or whatever. Um, I, Pick your pick. Except for BBC and, and Radio. Yeah, Free right. Liberty. I was gonna say. I was yeah. gonna say only only enemy media. <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, the, there's 
Well, I mean, there's that there's that classic thing that that people noticed about YouTube, for example, is that whenever there was a video from the BBC, it was uh, there was a notice that said BBC is a public service or, or uh, public company. I figure what the particulars are, but then, but then for uh, Russian media, uh, Telesur, Chinese mm-hmm. media, they have it owned by the X, Y, or Z government, and so there's right. always that distinction. Uh, but but for me, you know, I I was already sympathetic towards China. I was already interested. I, I already had a positive outlook on uh, on China's system, its role in the world, um, what it does, and what it stands for. And so, I mean, it just it just made sense. So for for me, it was it was a you know, the chicken egg scenario um, was pretty one sided. I, I you know I came here in part because because of what I believe. And coming here and working here has only kind of confirmed that. Uh, so for me, it's it's been it's been a really great experience. I mean, it's currently a difficult time, of course, but it also appears that that China has come through it for the most part. We're still being careful, you know. There's there's not there's still temperature checks everywhere. There's still mm-hmm. um, there's still you wear a mask. Like there's basically a social obligation to wear a mask, and, and you, if you don't, you can't get into some places. Um, so, you know, people are still taking it very seriously, but at the same time, it's getting back to normal. People are going out, taking walks and the parks are full again. The, the streets are full again. Um, so there's a general feeling that, that it's been cautiously beaten. Um, but with the, with the exception of, you know, this particular period, it's, it's been, and I mean, even, even now, I mean, it's instructive seeing how China handled this outbreak and, and, and hearing about my friends back in the U.S. and how long they're going to have to continue being under lockdown. The Wuhan, you know, the center of the outbreak had a 76-day lockdown. And mm-hmm. and that's, you know, nobody wants to do that. Nobody thinks it's a, it's, it's a great opportunity, but it was necessary uh, to contain the outbreak in the area where it was the worst. Others, other areas had shorter lockdowns, but I, you know, I feel like the U.S. is going to be, with its response, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but with the kind of uncoordinated, bizarre kind of state level, like state by state, now you've got some of these state packs that are making some arrangements, but you've got these different levels of, of control and lockdown, and you've got different times at which they're opening up. If you know anything about the virus, you know that that's going to prolong the amount of time that the virus spreads around the whole country. So I think it's going to be a lot longer than 76 days for most places in the U.S., and that's really tragic. Um, but yes. Well, you're, say- you're saying that we shouldn't drink bleach to, to overcome this and that China could be telling the truth about their cases? I mean, come on, Ian, let's get real here. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, 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 must, I must say I am not a medical professional, but <laughs> I, will, I will go ahead and put, and put my reputation on the line and say that drinking bleach is bad for you. Um, I just wanted to touch really quickly on the China Daily stuff because, of course, working at RT and then subsequently Telesaur, and Telesaur was, of course, created as this Marxist collaboration between Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, as a counter to corporate media hegemony that was basically trying to overthrow their countries, right? And yeah, yeah, I mean, being sympathetic toward the ideology, being sympathetic toward the views that were pushed by the outlet, um, you know, that that's something that you want to gravitate toward because it's one of the only news outlets that allows you to speak about such things, that allows you to criticize U.S. empire, um, imperialism, yes. things like this. And of course, that's why Russia Today was successful, at least um, after Occupy Wall Street, I think, because it provided that space of people who were willing to dissent against that corporate media orthodoxy. 
So I guess right. what my question well, I mean, is, and, and is, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, uh-huh. oh, sorry. No, you can ask, uh, I, I'm sure I can work it into the answer. Yeah. So I was just going to say, you know, what kind of outlet is China daily though? Cause I'm not too familiar with the content. Um, I don't know if it's as kind of obvious in terms of its, um, narrative, you know, as let's say Telesaur and Russia today, which I think are pretty heavy handed. Um, sure. Uh, what I mean is it more just kind of neutral? Like, tell us a little bit about China Today, or I'm sorry, China Daily, and um, and what kind of coverage they put out. Speaking to, to, to my experience, I mean, with with self censorship, which you hear a lot about when there's discussion of, of Chinese media and, and you know the so called state media, um, which you know for future reference, we'll just save time and say when we say state media, we're talking about the state media outlets that are demonized by uh, the imperial press. And not necessarily, you know, Deutsche Welle or, or BBC or, or, or France Media or anything like that. Um, they talk. The, there's talk about self censorship, and, and to be honest, I I engaged in a lot more self censorship when I was writing for papers in the U.S. Okay. I wrote an opinion column in Iowa, um, and you had to you couldn't come out and say you know talk about Marxism or communism or, or whatever because you wouldn't get printed. Um, that's obviously not an issue here. Uh, so I mean, and as, and you know, so for me, the the experience of, of writing here, I've been able to be more open and honest with my beliefs, and that reflects in social media as well. You know, you self censor on social media if you work in U.S. media, yeah, to a to a great degree. Um, but in terms of China Daily's orientation and outlook, I mean, it, it's the biggest English language newspaper uh, in the country, primarily English language. There's Chinese version, and then other media outlets have English versions, but. China is the China Daily is the is the English language paper of record, so to speak, and so it's got a more internationally oriented outlook. You know, there's a lot more there are a lot more stories about kind of foreign investment related stories about those sorts of things. Stories about uh, it's essentially like the, because English is the lingua franca for so much of the world now, due to imperialism uh, in the past you know, 100, 200 years. Uh, that this is the kind of window to the world. It's it's the internationally facing paper, and so it's not as you know. There, there's other there's other papers like Global Times um, and People's Daily that are maybe more uh, hardline mm-hmm. in their orientation. But I mean, it's it's not. There is some distinction, but it's it's not all that different. There is just maybe more of an emphasis on things. I mean, the, you know, none of these places are 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 reporting untrue things, but in in what they choose to emphasize uh, in their coverage and in their in their areas of focus may vary. As far as as far as my writing, though, um, I, I don't know that there's that much difference because I nine times out of ten, you know, I can, I can think of only a, a couple times where uh, a column I, I submitted didn't get printed as it was word for word. And if there were suggestions to changes, it was like any other editorial process where the recommendations made sense. They were well reasoned. There wasn't any kind of like scary body overseeing my uh, overseeing my work and, and you know taking a taking a red pen to it. Um, and I you know I'm I'm unapologetically uh, a communist. So you know that that's it's not even with the more internationally oriented outlook and and the more kind of friendly face to capital, shall we say? Um, there has never been an issue with me quoting Vladimir Lenin in a column. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Abby started working at RT, Ian, and I think it was around 2012, um, 
I was just on the periphery, but we were sort of able to get kind of a heads up almost on the coming Cold War 2.0 propaganda wave from the U.S. and Western media. So by the time like the Crimea referendum came up, there had already been a two-year lead-up of insidious and cynical Western media coverage about Russia, things like you know, a lot of coverage about the gay law, for example. Um, the Magnitsky Act became a really defining issue. Uh, Snowden seeking asylum in Russia. Even the idea that Snowden was possibly a secret Russian spy um, was being pushed in the mainstream media here. So while working at China Daily, since you started working there, um, you know, a little bit after the Trump administration, 2017, um, did you also have a sense of this artificial or manufactured growing um, anti-China sentiment in Western media uh, from the from the point that you started working there, and if you did, when did you start sensing it really ramping up? Because obviously, you know, part of what we're bringing you on here for is to talk about how this sort of all exploded after the COVID nineteen pandemic. But uh, you know, obviously, you seem like a, a savvy guy, and I'm sure you noticed some of this stuff building up early on. So, what when did you have a sense of that? And what was some of the stuff that you saw first that sort of felt really maybe artificial to you? Like, why is the Western media covering this so much right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does go before Trump, too. Let's let's be honest. Oh, the, for sure. The Obama, yeah. The Obama administration had its its famous pivot to Asia strategy that it was working on. Yeah. Um, and that and that and that Hillary Clinton would have absolutely picked up the reins on um, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well. You know, there were there were some there was some obvious attempts to get containment going at a, at a much earlier date than, than Trump kind of blew it all up with the trade war. And then now, uh, this, this escalation. Uh, so, you know, this, this has been a long time coming. And, and so if you're, you know, if you know how this, this kind of stuff works, if, if you know about the kind of, uh, the soft version and the hard version of, of the empire's tools, um, then you knew that this was going to be the, this is going to be the plan that, that the Obama administration was going to try to get Europe on board. Um, it was going to try to get other parts of Asia on board uh, in order to contain what it saw as a as a threat, an economic threat, not necessarily a military one, but there was also military buildup going along with that. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of in terms of the the reorientation with Trump, I mean, you you could see the you could see the warning signs clearly. In the campaign, right? Because that yeah. was his that was his that was his hobby horse. He he talked China, China, China all the time. And and to be, uh, you know, to be honest, he had been on that he had been on that soapbox for quite a long time. I think when he considered or did run, I can't remember whether he actually made the commitment back in uh, two thousand. There was talk about it, and so he was he was harping on China even back then. Um, because his thing was always you know being a business guy and caring about trade, and he he wants. You know, he wants uh, the best possible advantage for himself. Uh, he did at the time and still does, of course. And so that was him wanting to bring more business back into the U.S. because it would be beneficial for him personally and for his class. Uh, but in terms of in terms of what happened during his administration, I mean, I, yes, the the trade war was the was the canary in the coal mine for sure. Uh, the the imposition of tariffs came with an escalation of rhetoric. Uh, it, it came with a seizure upon any possible issue that could be made to look to use to make uh, China look bad to to 
uh, lower its standing in the world, um, kind of try to build up this, this international opposition. And so you get a variety of things. Uh, small at first, there was this is stuff that's now become memes about China, basically. You know, a lot of misinformation about the quote-unquote social credit system. Um, just a lot of a lot of misinformation about uh, Xi Jinping, the the president, um, and then when the trade war escalated, you you got a lot of stuff. And then when when the you know the, the protests in Hong Kong started, that became a big issue uh, that was seized on as well. There's a, there's I mean there's a lot of things right because this is the environment we're in now where the the CIA and FBI have basically recognized China as what they call a whole of society threat. So, and and the Defense Department has put out uh, new guidelines calling Russia and China "quote unquote" revisionist powers that are challenging the the liberal rules based order, as they call it. So, there's there's a coordinated strategy at all levels: uh, military, economic, law enforcement, uh, and in, and the media, of course. Because this is the media that, that exists in, in the U.S. and elsewhere, where it's you know for all the talk of, of state media being a, a tool of government, well, let's let's think about how these stories get circulated out to the the so-called free press, right? This these are the the great the great warriors of the truth and 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 getting all the information out to the people. Well, they're but they're just you know regurgitating what government officials tell them. Um, basically laundering the information out from intelligence agencies and, and military agencies and, and politicians and everybody. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot, but, but if you don't want to go that far back, then I would say, yes, the, the tariffs were the starting point because in part, um, no matter what was going to happen after that, because of the kind of decades of, of propaganda against China, against communist parties, uh, socialist countries around the world, you, you had a, a public and a media primed, you, you essentially primed the pump for a more aggressive strategy. And so once the tariffs started, once, once the, the orientation of the U.S. was clear, uh, there was no going back, right? The genie's out of the bottle. And you see that now with, with the way the Biden campaign has picked up on that and run and, and is now seeming to, to be engaging in a campaign that's, that's going to go to the right, uh, attempt to go to the right of Trump <laughs> on a lot of issues, but especially, uh, but especially China. Yeah, that, that notorious ad that came out just the other day. Uh, the, you know, there's there's no there's no political value anymore in in de-escalating. There's no political value in in calling it off and, and trying to broker uh, some measure of peace or some measure of cooperation. Now, even now, at a time whenever we need it more than any other time. Um, so this is where we are, right? I don't think I don't think anybody um, realistically expects a President Biden. To uh, to try to resolve these issues peacefully. I mean, I guarantee you, at some point, he will say, uh, either in a debate or somewhere else, that he will say, "This is actually one issue where I agree with with President Trump." <laughs> you know, because yeah, because you know how the Democrats will always try to they're they're seeking that that mythical Republican moderate. They're seeking that mm -hmm. that suburban voter, and they think that by creating some point of agreement uh, with Donald Trump, they'll be able to win those people over. But you know, we know how how uh, ridiculous that is, but they'll still do it. So, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not an optimistic picture, but, but that's kind of the timeline as I see it. Yeah. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, Trump's administration aggressively, um, you know, made this framing of the trade war and a lot of the things emanated from that. But I wanted to specifically get from you, if 
there was anything that you remember, if there was a key moment in like the particularly like the U.S. neoliberal press, let's call it, because a lot of this, you know, anti-China stuff has always been circulating in the right-wing media for as long as I can remember. Um, the Hong Kong protests definitely brought it over to the neoliberal press, and I know you did some uh, media appearances about that when those were still going. W- one thing I personally noticed that I just found an odd focus by some of our media outlets, like specifically Vice and Vox, is this idea that China was flooding the U.S. market, uh, drug market with fentanyl, the street market, and that China was almost responsible for all these overdoses in our country. So I, th- I found that sort of odd that the dialogue shifted away from our drug laws and you know how we treat addicts like criminals here to China was to blame for all these fentanyl overdoses all of a sudden. Um, and, that, yeah. and that was a really popular narrative for a while. But I don't know, if there's just something random that you can think of, like just a, a particular story um, that you remember, you know, maybe even some people that hold left views posting on social media where you thought that's odd that that's in the media right now. Is there anything that you can think of like that? Well, I mean, I know there's been so many things, but I, I know it's, I mean, it's hard to go back now cause it's, it's, it, there's a lot to, to choose from, but um, I don't know. I mean, there's, you started to get a lot more, um, left anti-china rhetoric during hong kong for sure yeah uh, you 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 got you got some you got some left voices that were trying to kind of claim the the movement claim the protests as a progressive force when you know it's obvious they're not uh, so there was there was that but i mean the the real the real thing that got me the thing that that got me noticing that a lot of the media coverage was was nonsense and that people were kind of uncritically repeating what they were reading about it because they didn't know any better um, was the the so-called social credit system. That was one of the first things that started picking up steam whenever I was here. Uh, and and there was a lot of, of false information coming out, deliberately misconstrued information. There was a lot of references to the TV show Black Mirror because it's a classic kind of dystopian thing you could point to that's in vogue right now. Um, but the reality is that the that the the social credit system, in so much as it exists, is mostly aimed at enterprises and firms, and not particularly individuals. I mean, there is some individual there is some individual consequence for uh, non-payment of fines or debts, but in, in terms of the actual focus of the of the policy, is is more on um, enterprises engaging in untrustworthy practices and a way of, of punishing and a way of, of creating a, a kind of ranking system. How exactly does it work? I mean, can you ex- just explain how the social credit system works? Because that is definitely yeah. a source of like a, a huge talking point. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it's generally this, be- the, the issue is that, well, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't use this as a point of comparison because I think it's good, but I, but I, will, I will say it, you know, that there isn't a, a kind of credit score the way there is in the U.S., right, which is based on financial transactions and, and mm-hmm. your, your, perceived, your perceived financial trustworthiness. Well, there is no similar thing because in China because the vast majority of people save rather than, than, than take out credit. You know, there's, there's more real money circulating in the economy than, than, than credit um, on the personal level and on the individual enterprise level. And then at the same time, there was concern about, uh, about reliability. This, you know, this, this is happening at the same time as China is attempting to upgrade its industrial chain, is attempting to, to move into higher tech products, to move into more advanced forms of industry. And so 
you need a, a, a more reliable industrial network for that. And so there was a, and there was a perception for a long time, there still is that that Chinese made goods are cheap, they break, uh, that they're, that they're kind of, of shoddy quality. And so this was kind of an attempt to, to, you know, solve both issues at the same time by creating this system that for enterprises ranks you on your trustworthiness based on your, your adherence to the law, based on your, your payment of, of, uh, of debts, your, you know, a lot of factors. And then for individuals uh, on a much smaller scale, uh, similar things. But the, the overemphasis in the coverage of it was on the kind of perceived individual punishments that would take place. But the nature of those punishments is very different from the, from the reality because they were trying to make it seem like it was a tool of social control for the average person. Um, but the problem with that is that the punishments that were meted out to individuals, uh, for the most part, I mean, very few exceptions, really, um, are limited to higher end kind of things. For example, the, the punishments for uh, non-payment of, of debt or court costs are restrictions on, um, restrictions on flying, but also restrictions on the highest tier level of high-speed train, the luxury, luxury cars of high-speed trains. Uh, the, punish, the, the bigger punishments are towards luxury consumption, luxury spending, because the targets of this policy are enterprises that engage in untrustworthy activity and their executives. And so the likelihood of regular people being impacted by this is, is far lower than, than wealthier people will. So if, if an executive is found to enge have engaged in misconduct, but they don't get any kind of criminal punishments uh, or civil punishments if, if they're not taken to court, then this provides an alternative method of, of punishment and a, and a method of uh, behavioral reinforcement that cuts them off from private, expensive private schooling, uh, cuts them off from, like I said, luxury train travel, uh, conspicuous consumption spending. These, these are measures that are deliberately aimed at a specific group of people, wealthier people, not you know, average workers, average people. I've heard people, honestly, like you said, compared to that Black Mirror episode where the woman's walking around and getting like raided yeah. by people based on her social interaction and then, and then punished based on that rating. Um, so this is right. really fascinating, though, that this is mostly like a financial application of yeah. it. And I mean, the, 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 the misconceptions also came out of a misunderstanding of how the, the actual governmental process works in China, which is to say that the central government hands down kind of uh, kind of open-ended guidelines, right? They want certain things to be done at a certain time. But in terms of how that's accomplished, local governments get a great deal of autonomy and leverage in how they accomplish it. So you would get in one city, for example, attempting to do something like, uh, they, would, they would attach a, a score to jaywalking or like minor offenses like littering, right? This was painted as like this horrible dystopian thing. Um, but it was only one city trying something out, right? There's a lot of these like pilot projects that take place in, in municipalities, um, pr provinces, counties, towns, villages. At every level of administration, there are attempts to try things and if and the things that work might make it back up the chain and get adopted on a national level or they might not. And so you got some of these cities trying different things, some of which were, you know, over the line, but at the same time, these were all policies being tested, and if the public outcry was strong enough, as it was in the case of, of, of a couple policies, I think in, in Hangzhou there was a there was a fine there was a fine, and, and possibly I don't remember if there was a social credit association with um, 
walking dogs at the wrong time of day. Well, the public outcry was so strong against that that the, the Hangzhou government said, "Ah, oh, we're just kidding." Um, and they kind of they kind of backed off of it, and that's and that's kind of how the the system of governance works. But what you got instead was you got some media outlets in the West taking these individual applications of the of the overall goals and saying that it was being applied to the entire country. What about the application in terms of like uh, dissent? Because that's where a lot of people uh, think that it's mostly cent- centralized around as well. Um, I mean, that, that's always a concern, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see that. I mean, the, the re- you, I mean, the thing is, this it's also not like this is a secretive policy. You can find the you can find the policy online, like it's publicly available to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and the focus is is on financials, like uh, financial offenses. And um, and offenses by enterprises and businesses uh, and executives like the, this is the thing, right? The the it's also for government officials too. So some level of punishment is also expulsion from government posts or disallowal from applying to government posts for a period of time, and possibly uh, if they're in the Communist Party to be removed from the Communist Party. Like there's there's a there's a great deal of disciplinary mechanisms that are that are being done, and they are focused on what we would call you know, I don't like this term a lot, but it's hard to think of a better shorthand. The elite. Uh, it's it's about enforcement of of kind of this overall goal of improving the the value chain and improving the the domestic industries in China, uh, and you know, correcting this behavior because it's wrong. So, uh, I, I mean, I, people people tend to run with that uh, potential application without there being a whole lot of evidence for it. Well, it seems like there's just such an enormous fixation in the West on China's surveillance technology in general and integration with the state. But it just kind of, there's just this great sense of irony considering the power of Silicon Valley, you know, this incredible reach and draconian surveillance power that's implemented worldwide, essentially, based on the companies that that control most of um, the government apparatus here. So it's just odd you know, I mean, it's just odd. You even have talk from Google and Facebook and other companies of instituting a similar COVID-19 tracking app to the one that was already implemented in China that people were just up in arms about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I have experience with that app as well. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. There, you know, there's not much to it besides just um, scanning a, a identification and getting a health code that tells whoever's looking at it where you've been uh, and, and whether you are at risk of, of infection. For me, I haven't left Beijing in the last three months, so it just shows Beijing for me. Um, but you know, I, like this is the thing, right? It's I don't I don't see that much of a difference, and in fact, I, I think I think it's worse if you if you portion out this kind of surveillance cap capacity to private companies, right, and then pretend that it's it's somehow different from a state. It, it's the same. It's the same as the kind of state media divide where okay are we does it really matter that that it's a private company that's kind of laundering this stuff whether it's a government or, or, or a corporation i mean is there is there really a distinction there is it a distinction without a difference i i think so and so um in, in some ways it's more insidious because you've got this you've got this kind of ingrained sense of of privacy protection that doesn't really exist right and you've got people that are thinking well you know, my I, I have a better right to privacy than I do in, in say China, for example. But the you know the opposite is true. Um, that you you have less or or just the same amount of privacy. You're just you're just fooled into thinking otherwise. Um, 
yeah, so, so this is this is the this is the difficulty of, of engaging these conversations because, I mean, you know, with with people who might not be on the same page, you have to. It, it's hard to lay out this this metric for for understanding how these things work because it's easy. It's also easier ideologically if you're surrounded by if you're surrounded by ideology, you're surrounded by media that reinforces a narrative that you don't have this kind of, that, that you're more uh, complacent about, that you're not as hypercritical of if you, than you might be if, if you, for example, lived in a place that had a, a big state media apparatus. Um, I, I think in many ways, Chinese people are more critical uh, of what they're told than people in the U.S., but that doesn't, that doesn't shake their, their faith or their, their approval of the government and the Communist Party. I mean, you know, polling bears this out. Um, so in, in the U.S., you've got you've got a less critical population, I think, uh, for that and many other reasons. Just uh, beyond just the general conversations people are having, like you know, we were just talking about how a lot of liberals are making a big deal about the social credit system, um, but there's also a lot of insidious um, conspiracy theories. Uh, circulating about China right now, especially on the internet, you see them, uh, and they've really exploded, you know, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's it's really honestly hard to know which one to start with. I mean, the most inflammatory one that we've already talked about, Ian, is this idea that this was either an accidental or deliberate release of some kind of bioweapon or chimera virus, you know, that was being studied <laughs> at that lab. But let's start off with something that's just sort of, you know, out of left field, but you've also talked about this, is the um, fear-mongering about 5G. Um, you said on Twitter, uh, I think it's, shall we say, interesting that a 5G causes coronavirus conspiracy theory has been circulating in countries where the U.S. failed to keep out Hawaii 5G. What countries are these, and, and can you expound upon what you meant by this? The the 5G wireless network, uh, you know, it, it's it's a quantum leap in terms of in terms of speed, in terms of of uh, Fidelity, uh, quality in terms of audio and video, it's a, it's a new it's a new paradigm in terms of wireless uh, wireless networking. It's it's you know it's broadband level internet access through wireless. Um, so it, it's a huge improvement in, in, in cell phone mobile service. Uh, it's it's a it's going to be a big deal. It's going to it's going to lead the next the next. This is setting the groundwork for the next big technology push right because this is this is the technology that can get us to the next thing uh, with these improved these improved wireless standards and china has been several years ahead of the u.s for some time for a number of reasons for a number of reasons but the biggest to me uh that that i find uh funny is that the the u.s when it's had to work on 5g has had to work in a lower range a, a lower wireless range a lower lower quality wireless bands um, because, and China has been working in an upper range in, in a higher level frequency, uh, higher quality wireless bands. The reason for this is because the the capacity of the higher level bands in the U.S. is being monopolized by the U.S. military. Wow. Uh, the, the military has, has control of most of, of most of that, uh, most of that wireless quantum. And so the, the 5G, Development that's been happening in the U.S. has been at a lower standard to the point where it inter- it actually is on the same wavelength as w- uh, a lot of weather weather prediction technology. So it, it stands to to cause a big problem 
if it's a, if it's adopted on that on that range on a widespread level. Now, the companies that are working on 5G in the U.S. have lobbied the Department of Defense to to allow them to work in that range, and the Department of Defense has said no. Uh, so. Uh, there, but there's a number of reasons. I mean, the, the part of it is is the nature of the Chinese economy, the nature of the, the political system. You've got, you know, you've got a more integrated public sector, uh, and you've got you've got a, a more kind of fuzzy distinction between public and private sector in China, and you've got big public capital. You know, the the, the biggest sources of capital in China are are, are public. They're they're state banks. Uh, the, there's there's private banks, but they don't they don't come anywhere close to the level that you get with, with the, the big five banks uh, because of the obvious preferential treatment that they get in terms of, of financing from the central bank. Um, and so what this has meant is that you have seen a big push in terms of research and technology development in big national champion companies, Huawei being one of them. And Huawei is uh, has been you know moving forward at a breakneck pace and has been cheapening the technology at the same time to the point where it's more affordable, both on a personal level and on a kind of infrastructural level. So Huawei has been leading the way on 5G development, both in terms of its its mobile phones and in terms of it, the actual infrastructure, the wireless towers, uh, the, the the actual structures needed to to dis- disperse the, the higher level signal. And, and, this is a, and this is a big upgrade. And so there are a lot of countries that Huawei has been has been talking with in term in order to provide its its 5G infrastructure and because Huawei has has been ahead of the ahead of the pack for the most part and because it offers a much less expensive rate than other companies would European companies uh, U.S. companies it has been successful in in many places it, and a lot of the the global south for example has has uh, started work on on Huawei 5G and, and adopting it in their in their countries Africa being one of them um, the one of the areas uh, lots of countries in Africa are adopting it but Europe has been kind of a battleground in terms of whether a country is or is not going to adopt Huawei 5G because there there are a lot of unfounded accusations of conser- security concerns um, there's been a lot of stuff thrown around about the relationship between Huawei and the Chinese government and the People's Liberation Army, most of which has been very spurious and, and not very well researched. Um, and, and the actual security concerns has been another one of those things we've been seeing a lot lately, especially in terms of COVID-19, of, of intelligence agencies just saying, trust us, and not giving any evidence, not giving any any actionable proof, and just saying, uh, it's bad. We, we think it's bad and, and you shouldn't adopt it. Uh, we can't tell you why. And, and you know, we've seen that with, with some of the leaks, the quote-unquote leaks that have happened with regard to COVID-19. There's been a lot of conspiracies floating around that have been pushed by uncritical repetition of intelligence agency claims with unnamed sources and no quotes and no actual documentation. The same thing goes here. So there, there has been a, a struggle uh, between the U.S., intelligence sectors, military sectors, to convince parts of Europe that they should not be adopting uh, Huawei 5G. And they have been unsuccessful uh, in in some areas, and they've been successful in others. The, the Anglophone countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, have been, uh, have, have enacted a ban. Uh, Canada, I, I believe, was on the cusp of enacting a ban. I don't actually know whether they've done it yet. They might, they might not, but there's another thing about the Canadian government um, arresting a Huawei executive 
uh, last year when she when she arrived in, in Canada um, on on spurious charges of uh, well in this case it was it was dodging sanctions on Iran uh, which in, in the eyes of the the Western intelligence apparatus that's a terrible crime and not uh, and not humanitarian action to relieve <laughs> sanction uh, relieve sanctions for beleaguered people but anyway um, the biggest battleground is the UK uh, is Great Britain for sure because the John, the Boris Johnson government over some objections in his own party, uh, Boris Johnson has considered the possibility of using Huawei's 5G in a limited capacity. Um, again, no proof of the national security concerns, but they would have had you know, some sort of firewall in place, and Huawei agreed to it. They had no problem with that because they don't, you know, they're not <laughs> they're not some kind of secret spy agency. They're a they're a company. Um, they're a, a big worker co-op. They're owned by they're owned by the the ownership of the actual company is the trade union committee of Huawei. This COVID-19 outbreak, obviously being very severe in the UK to the point where Johnson himself was infected, um, it, it, it dovetails very nicely, the two things happening, right? Because you can say, you can use the, the COVID-19 outbreak to say, China can't be trusted, they did this, this, and this, we don't have any proof, but just trust us. But then also, you know, if, if people believe that, they might start believing that the, the Huawei infrastructure is also dangerous. And so... It, it, it articulates itself on an individual level, on, on this kind of vulgar level, with the with the five G causes coronavirus stuff. Um, I don't think that the U.S. <laughs> planted that. I don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was circulated whole cloth. But I think it certainly serves a purpose. Um, and yeah. you've got people, you know, ripping apart five G posts and, and and doing damage to this infrastructure. Um, Burning this some is of them of, in some cases in the UK. Some yeah. of them set on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is the. This is like the, the, the ground level of, of the, the kind of narrative that's being pushed on multiple fronts right now. And I, and I don't think they're unrelated, I don't, I, but I also don't think it's like, you know, that it was totally invented. But I think it certainly serves a purpose and you can amplify it pretty easily without much trouble. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether, whether, the, whether Britain will, will adopt Huawei. You know, uh, you get some conflicting reports probably from fact, uh, forces within the conservative party that don't want to see it happen, um, trying to make it seem like Johnson is, is furious at, at China for a supposed cover-up, but nobody's gone on the record to say, to say that, so we don't know whether it's actually true or not. Um, but there's certainly pressure being put on, and, and his, his personal experience with the virus might affect that for sure. Interesting. I mean, we could examine the surface-level rhetoric about you know a lot of the stuff that they're putting out there about not wanting this company to have 5G installed. They're trying to drum up a lot of suspicion about security issues that it's possibly some kind of Chinese government backdoor takeover. You know some of the insinuations I've seen out there um, that they're going to like steal your information or it's all secret spy operation. But what are the real reasons do you think underneath what the rhetoric that they're actually putting out? Like, do you think this is just ultimately all about not wanting a major Chinese company to have this much sort of dominance in the global marketplace, since like they are, as you said, ahead in terms of the technology. They're a few years ahead of some of these other major companies, like Verizon and some of these other big companies are involved in 5G also. But what is it about this specifically that they're actually threatened by? Well, I mean, we can go back to, I mean, we can go back to Lenin on this, really. Um, Sure, do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, the distinction between monopoly and non-monopoly capital is, is an important one. Um, and for 
in the last several decades, the U.S. and, and Western Europe and, and the countries that it has deemed that those that those places have deemed worthy of, of their support have been moving up the value chain. Right? They've they've specialized in in more complicated products. They have they have uh, they have honed their industrial capacity to the point where they can produce more advanced technology. Uh, the labor is is itself more advanced. Uh, the workforce gets more educated. The workforce gets more specialized. You know, you see, you see this in the U.S., of course, with with the kind of uh, transformation into a service economy, because the actual productive labor for manufacturing has been moved elsewhere because the the capitalists in the U.S. and elsewhere have decided that the the rate of profit is far greater if manufacturing is moved to another place, and so service service industries are what remains after manufacturing leaves. And, and the actual productive labor of, uh, well, I mean, you know, service industries, productive labor as well. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves. It's absolutely socially necessary. But in terms of, uh, in terms of its value, right, in terms of, its, in terms of how capital values it, that's changed. The, the actual value of the labor has not, but, but in terms of what, what dollar, dollar figure capital is willing to give it, it's changed. Um, so you've got this specialization taking place. And so the value chain moves outward at the bottom and, and mid-tier levels with the, the raw materials, heavy industry, manufacturing, um, some specialized uh, factory work, but, but not all. And you get design work, you get, um, you get higher level technology in the, in the US, in the core countries, because you can still extract a great deal of profit from those particular pursuits. And so it's, it's valuable to have those industries within your borders. But uh, and you know this is this is what imperialism does, right? It, it moves, it moves the the lower level functions, the lower level uh, rungs of the value chain outward, and then continues to specialize, continues to monopolize on the higher levels, so we can keep extracting a higher rate of profit over time. Which is why, for all the talk of China's growth, if you actually look at the GDP per capita of each country, China only just hit ten thousand dollars in GDP per person. That's the level the U.S. was at in the 1970s. Okay, the U.S. is now at sixty thousand dollars per person, even with all the growth that's happened in China, and it, it has been phenomenal. It's, it's been it's been incredible. Now, growth is not the only metric for success, but what we're talking about the comparative natures of the economies right now. The U.S. has has outpaced China six to one, uh, even more, really, over over the last period. Like like for all the talk of China rising as a rival, it it it, it isn't really. Like it's it's not about rivalry. Right, it's about development, and so China is in in building its industries. In you know, in 1978, it basically it basically made an agreement with with international capital. International capital could come in, provide investment, uh, move move production, uh, and Chinese and China's educated workforce, educated thanks to an unprecedented literacy and education campaign, and from 1949 to 1978. And, and, and further on, you know, educating a giant group of people that were mostly in the rural peasantry, um, you had you had a bargain essentially for for a period of time that that yes, foreign capital would be able to exploit the workforce of China, but not in the same way that it was able to do so in in other places in in, in places that hadn't had a revolution that hadn't solidified the the political system and governance behind uh, behind the well-being of all people in social need. And so in places that, that, you know, capital creates comprador states, right? It, it makes agreements with, um, 
with figures in the leadership that will that will turn a blind eye to the exploitation. Well, China was willing to allow a degree of exploitation, but with certain conditions. So if a foreign company came in and did business, they would have to agree to form a joint venture with, with Chinese state companies or, or Chinese companies um, to share technology, to share expertise, to train the workforce at the same time. China essentially, because of the system that it has, because of the 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 control the Communist Party exerts on the economy, the control the state has on the economy, they were able to manage their exploitation to a degree that they're still exploited. You know, the U.S. is still getting a great deal in terms of Chinese labor, but because of some of the restrictions they were able to place on foreign capital, they have been able to develop in a way that outstrips uh, almost all other countries, with the exception of some of the, the so-called East Asian tigers like Japan, South Korea, uh, Republic of Korea. They were able to do it because of a strong state role in the economy, but also because they made the bargain with the U.S. to allow troops and to allow influence, mm -hmm. direct influence. What, what this all goes back to is that this is all about laying the groundwork for the creation of a domestic industry that can move up the value chain and eventually, maybe, depending on how severe the U.S. Uh, assault on it is, break the monopolies. Uh, the, the biggest thing right now, I mean, this is why this is why the U.S., when it attacked Huawei, it attacked microprocessors and, and, and restricted imports by Huawei of microprocessors because that's a very complicated technology that U.S. companies still have a monopoly on. Intel, um, Intel and AMD, uh, I believe, are the, are the big microprocessor companies in the U.S., and they hold a, a virtual monopoly. This is, this is the best possible example of, of the exact phenomenon I'm talking about where the highest level, and, and, and then of course the production of the iPhone is the other one, where design takes place in the U.S. The, the you know the, the 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 labor that capital has has valued to the highest degree takes place in the U.S. and then assembly and manufacture takes place in China and and other uh, other countries, uh, depending on where you are. You know some of the lower end components are now being made in other places, but the final assembly is still taking place in China. So all this gets back to what Huawei has done and what Huawei is doing. You know, not with any kind of malicious intent, but just because you, you know, you can't get stuck. You can't get stuck in the lurch uh, and and not be able to develop and and get you know get caught in a holding pattern where you're going to be kind of kept on a level of exploitation that's not going to be able to sustain a higher quality of life, living standard for your people. That is the goal, really. I mean, breaking the U.S. monopolies doesn't just mean that that the the hege hegemonic dominance of the economy by the U.S. and its allied countries is broken, but it also means that that you can pass on the gains that you get from breaking those monopolies onto the people. It's why it's why when the OECD and, and, and other organizations track wage growth in the world, they have to separate out wage growth in the world with and without China, because China has been such a huge driver of wage growth within its own borders. In Asia, there's no comparison. The, 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 it's off the charts. You know, this is this is the the mission. Let's shift gears to COVID-19. Uh, you know, as someone who grew up predominantly in Texas, I guess you probably weren't surprised to see Americans are just as brainwashed as ever, Ian. I mean, deflecting blame to China instead of our own inept criminal government that just neglected yeah. to act in any sort of coordinated measure, as you were speaking about at the beginning of the podcast, for over two months. I mean, this is after the world knew the seriousness of the pandemic so I guess just quickly debunk the claims about, you know, the WHO being China's puppet, the overall theme that Trump and his cohorts keep repeating that it's China's fault and that people yeah. are actually believing here 
that China did this. Um, and, you know, even though 50,000 people have died here, you just keep hearing people deflect and deflect and just be like, well, China is definitely lying about the death toll, too. So we can't really take anything they say seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, as far as China's response, I mean, you know, I've been here. Uh, and Beijing, Beijing is fortunately a place that was not as hard hit as other parts of the country. But, you know, the lockdown was still there was not I mean, there wasn't an official lockdown, but everybody abided by it. You know, there was a there was a, a, a broad understanding of the necessity of these measures to contain the outbreak. So they didn't even so, do a nationwide lockdown is what you're saying. No, it was different levels depending on which parts of the country you're in. You know, the, the number of cases in Beijing never went above a thousand and, and still hasn't gone above a thousand cumulatively. So there's parts of the country that were not as hard hit that didn't have to go into the really stringent measures. But at the same time, people abided by it. People only went out for groceries. People stayed home, um, myself included, everybody I know included. Um, there was no, there was no discontent about it. You know, it, it's, it's not, again, it's not an ideal situation, but you do what you have to do to keep this thing from spreading. Uh, and so it's not, it's not a surprise that, that the, that the infection rate and the, and the death rate is so low because this is the level of response that, that it takes to keep it that way. But as for the initial response, the initial days, uh, there's a lot of very disingenuous stuff being put out about that. I mean, you could go on. Um, but I think a lot of what a lot of it depends on is a, a, a deliberate misreading of, of public statements by the Chinese Health Commission and the, and the World Health Organization, both. Um, the obvious fact is that China informed the WHO of, an, of a pneumonia of unknown cause, which is what they were calling it at the time because they didn't know it was a, a, a new coronavirus yet, on December 31st. Um, you know, three days, four, uh, three, four days, depending on the time zone, uh, after a doctor in, in Hubei, uh, uh, Zhang Jixian, reported a cluster of cases to hospital administration, who then, who then reported it to local CDC, and then it went up the chain and reached the national level to the point where they told the WHO. Um, this was not a, this was not a, a slow process. It was a, it was a response that was, that was determined at each point by the, the, what data they had, the information they had at the time and the best protocols for responding to that, the situation as, as laid out by the data. So in late December, there wasn't a, there wasn't a certainty that it was a new coronavirus. Um, there was still there was not the the proof yet. Uh, it it took it was on January 9th that that the that the determination was made that it was a new coronavirus, and then two days later, the whole thing was sequenced and made public. the The genome of the virus was put out for everybody to see and for researchers to use for treatment and vaccine development and for and to figure out how to respond to it. Um, there was never despite some iffy wording in one particular tweet from the WHO that gets passed around all the time, um, there was never a consensus that that human-to-human -human transmission was impossible. What was being said was that the data showed the likelihood of what was... And, and to be honest, I think that the terminology could be, could be fixed here because it's led to a lot of confusion. There's been a, there's been a great deal of taking advantage of, of general scientific illiteracy. Um, because there, there's what's called limited human-to-human -human transmission and then sustained human-to-human -human transmission or community spread. And limited human-to-human -human transmission takes place between people, but people that have very close contact with one another. So households, uh, close coworkers, healthcare workers who are in contact with infected patients. And, and you know, when you, when you intubate somebody, you, you, you have to, you put a tube in their throat. Um, that, that is a really 
terrible thing that has to happen, but it also is a way to spread the virus. And so if you're not adequately protected, you can get infected. Um, which at the time, you know, if you're treating, and this is the other thing, the other thing people are taking advantage of, people that, that either know better or don't care. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that cause pneumonia-like symptoms, right? Just like there's a lot of things that cause flu-like symptoms. And if you're a doctor and somebody comes in with the, what looks like pneumonia, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of viral pneumonia. It's not even, it's not even limited to, to one type of viral pneumonia. Um, so if you're a doctor and you've got a patient and you treat the symptoms, um, you're not really thinking, is this a brand new virus? No, nobody's thinking that. And, and as far as the backtracing goes, the first case to come in to, to get hospitalized was on December the 1st. They backtraced one potential case to November 17th, but these were cases that did not require hospitalization. So, of course, they're not going to get noticed by anybody. And then the first hospitalization cases come in starting in December. But at the same time, Hubei is a big place. There's a thousand hospitals in Hubei. Um, so if you get a slow trickle of one or two people going into hospitals, they're going to different hospitals, they live in different parts of the town. It's not until around December 16th, 17th that you get a cluster of people, that you get a family unit, multiple people showing the same symptoms. That tips you off to there potentially being some concern here, but at the same time, it, it, you still have to treat the symptoms. Um, you, you still, you know, you're still doing the, the first duty of a doctor, which is to heal. And so um, the first report of, of this being potentially new coronavirus was again on the 26th of December um, from a John Xixian. There's been a lot of, of hay made about Dr. Li Wenyang, uh, Li Wenyang, who shared in a private message that he thought this was a new SARS virus and that, and that he, he asked for it to be made private and kept private, but that it, it, got, it got online and it, found a, it, it got legs and it started spreading around very fast. And so, but the reality is the first person to report this reported it through the system, through the protocols that were supposed to happen for, for, uh, for infectious disease. And the result is that the process worked. You know, we, we see a gradual timeline of as the severity of the virus becomes more clear and as it becomes more likely that sustained human to human transmission is the case, it's finally confirmed on January the 20th or 21st, depending on your, uh, depending on your time. And, and then by the 23rd, there's this huge lockdown in Wuhan. And then that lockdown spreads over the next week or so to the rest of the country. So there's been a lot of attempts to, to paint this as a, as a cover-up, as, you know, as a slow response. But the funny thing is that in the early days of the epidemic, when the lockdown happens, for example, you know, there was no talk of a cover-up. Everyone was just saying this is going too far. It's a violation of human rights. Right, right, right. It's it's, a, it's authoritarianism. You know, the Washington Post had a headline blaming authoritarianism for the outbreak and, and saying that 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 you know the measures go too far. Uh, Ken Roth and I think Human Rights Watch put out a put out a tweet about oh my oh, god China's China's locking down 35 million people in typical Communist Party fashion and not <laughs> respecting human rights. Well, you know, I personally I think not drowning in your own in your own lung fluid is is a human right, but that's just me. Um, the, yeah, so like they, this doesn't jive with the facts at all, but there are certain things you could, you could take, for example, the distinction between limited and sustained human, human transmission. I think that the terminology should be changed because it's a little confusing. Uh, and then also, you know, the, the understanding of medical practice, the understanding of, of what happens when a, when a patient comes in with symptoms, uh, and, and that these symptoms have multiple potential causes. There, you, you can take these points and then and then create a narrative, but it's 
you know, if you understand the reality of the situation, it's doesn't hold up. Well, and it's not too hard to figure out the reality. I mean, you just follow the timeline and you you can understand it. That's why it's just so frustrating to hear people bemoan and belabor this point that that China did this right to us. Mm-hmm. You even see people like Matt Stoller and some people that claim to be on the left that are going as far as saying that, you know, the Chinese government is the new Nazi party and that this was a war crime. Like literally a war crime on the world. It's just act absolutely outrageous. Yeah, an act of war. Um, but well, yeah, I mean, I, I find I find that particularly funny because you know they're claiming that China's committing war crimes, but who is who is escalating sanctions and dropping bombs on countries? Of course, as a, as a pandemic rages. Right? Well, well, right, and and who is actually sending masks and medical equipment to nations in need, including like New yep. York City, where Cuomo needed yep. ventilators and China sent them? But that's all that's all currying favor, right, for the for the Communist Party. So you just can't win. It doesn't yep. matter what you do. So it's yeah, just I mean, absolutely and, and, insane. I forget the time period, but but over the last few weeks, China has sent over a billion masks to the U.S. A billion, <laughs> like. With a B. <laughs> wow. Well, the narrative that we're you know that we're talking about that they allegedly covered it up and basically put the entire world at risk. You know, it's sort of part. On one hand, it's designed to obfuscate the blame away from us and you know the United States government for being so terribly unprepared for this. And then on the other hand, it also seems to really feed into this you know, really, really insidious and I think, frankly, dangerous theory that's been circulating that this is either some kind of Chinese bioweapon, you know, manufactured by some kind of military arm of the Chinese government, or it's an accidental or purposeful release of a modified, you know, gain-of-function chimera coronavirus that escaped from this Wuhan biosafety level four lab. So these two theories, I mean, they were once considered fairly fringe. One of them, the one that I just mentioned, the last one, is actually now uh, having legs in mainstream media. It's in Washington Post by Josh Rogan. CNN is actually now quoting these State Department leaks talking about it. Chris Hayes is commenting about how you know he thinks it's really alarming. Um, you know, so that's that's a bad sign when you see it coming from the right wing fringe. You know, Tom Cotton almost two months ago now was out in front and center talking about this, but now it's crossed over to Washington Post. So I guess my point is. Um, that that's a, b- a bad sign of where this can go. So when did you start first seeing those th- specific theories taking float? And from where did you see them? And then at what point did you realize sort of how coordinated and overt that campaign was to get this narrative that it, you know, it was an accidental release or a bioweapon? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, I, I mean, I think you guys have done great work on this exhaustively kind of tracking this down and showing where it comes from and who's, who's amplifying it and, and all that stuff. I mean, it, it comes, it comes from a variety of sources, right? There's a lot of anti-China. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, loci or locations, um, of kind of anti-China misinformation. You get some from, some of the people that, that you that you mentioned um, in your in your previous episodes, uh, the Committee on the Present Danger, uh, the PNAC type organization that that's staff, that's uh, yeah. what is it, Frank Gaffney and 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 Steve Bannon, yep, those guys, um, you know, a lot of ex intelligence, ex ex U.S. government officials um, pushing this pushing this message. But I mean, you know, who does Steve Bannon get a million dollars a year from? Uh, Guo Wenguai, this exiled 
uh, billionaire who who pushes a, pushes these conspiracy theories and, and claims to have all this damning information about the Chinese Communist What's Party. What's he exiled and, for? Wait, I, I want to just ask you about that really quick because when I heard about that guy, he kind of reminded me of a Bill Browder esque figure, sure. sort of hoisted up in the same way. Who, who, who really briefly t- talk about him? I believe it was. I believe he was like a like a white collar criminal, and he and he fled basically consequences for his actions in China. But the particulars, I, I should know, but unfortunately, I don't. Um, I believe he's in. I believe he's in New York now. He's in the U.S. now for sure. I don't know where he hangs his hat, but he goes to D.C. a lot. Yeah. Uh, for for obvious reasons. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, this is this is he's got he's got the money where he can uh, he can push this. The other. The other source would be, um, and you know, they're they're all linked together too. So there's not like you know, this isn't like multiple fronts. It's all one united front from a lot of different forces. But like Falun Gong, this uh, this cult, and it is it is a cult. It is it, the way I describe it is is if Scientology and Jehovah's Witnesses got together and made something because <laughs> because it has it has the kind of money draining. Um, promises of, of eternal enlightenment of Scientology, and it has the, the denial of. Med- I guess Scientology has denial of, of psychiatry, but uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have like a denial of, of like basic medicine. <laughs> so it, it's it like the. For example, you you know the people people talk about Falun Gong um, members being, uh, you know, like the, these Falun Gong leaders fled the country and. and Essentially, the, the 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 practice, the cult was outlawed. But I'd like I'd like to ask, you know, imagine this pandemic happening right now, or the SARS pandemic, which happened uh, after uh, Falun Gong was made illegal. Um, you know, a group, uh, a big group of people that denies the efficacy of medicine. Uh, imagine what would happen in a pandemic <laughs> like this one. Um, so very, I mean, so very dangerous group of people and they and they have a huge media apparatus the epoch times um new new tongue dynasty television which is known as ntd so if you see any videos from ntd that's that. on, yeah that's another smoke screen for for Falun Gong. um they have a they have a huge compound in new york uh the leader still lives there it's uh, there's actually been some coverage in the western press about this they they I'm surprised that they did this. Actually, um, that there was the NBC news story about the Epoch Times being the the locus of this this anti-communist, pro-Trump cult conspiracy movement. I read that article. Um, it was a pretty great piece. New York Times did a pretty great piece on them as well. Yeah, I think everyone's heard of the Falun Gong. It's very bizarre how they went from such a fringe, like you know, allegedly persecuted religious group in China, to this full-blown worldwide propaganda machine i mean the epic times ha- it, what is it like 70 percent of all ads on youtube now are the epic times they're putting free papers out in the bay area it's bizarre it's bizarre that they have so much money in financing where is this all coming from and continue on with you know the media apparatus that they have well i mean i think it's a combination of things you in terms of fun in terms of the fundraising strategy you cannot beat a cult um right because if if the if the whole premise of the of the cult is that you will receive spiritual enlightenment and you take advantage of you know you take advantage of, of people in, in difficult situations, uh, and if the premise of the whole thing is that you you circulate your money upward and you and you live you basically only keep enough to subside on if even that you know there's stories of people that worked at the Epoch Times that said they got paid peanuts um, and that they should and that they if they asked for a raise they were told they should be happy with what they had for X Y or Z cult reason. Um, you can circulate money upward 
centralize it and then distribute it out via propaganda. And it's a self-sustaining apparatus when you have when you have this conspiracy talk that confirms preconceived notions about China, right? You, people are more likely to believe things you say about China in part because the, the corporate media also does this work by reporting mm -hmm. false stories or, or, or misleading stories about China. So it all, you know, it all works in concert. And so if you're, if you're then pushing the most fringe aspect of that narrative, you know, the narrative is all the same. The narrative is that China's China, China's bad. Communist party's bad. Uh, can't be trusted. But you know, that narrative has many different prongs saying different things. You've got the more measured, reasonable mainstream press, which, as you mentioned, this is the difference between the bioweapon theory and the accidental leak theory. The bioweapon theory gets pushed in the far-right fringes. It doesn't really catch on with the mainstream press because there's no evidence for it. Scientists aren't coming out and saying this is possible. The studies that said that it had a, it had the virus had some shared aspects of HIV suggesting engineering were totally proven false. Um, but this accidental leak story sounds more reasonable to the average person. Uh, it's more plausible seeming. And so you get, you get that angle pushed in the, in the mainstream press. And so you have these multiple fronts, but the end result is the same. And I feel like there's also something very insidious happening on social media where, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, that I follow on social media who are more of the left persuasion, where it's very like intellectual people, they're sort of getting sucked into that anonymous paper that's circulating. That's like something like a couple you know, I think it's like a dozen scientists, allegedly, that don't put their names on it. It's called something like Project Evidence. Um, the URL was originally Project Epstein. And it's a <laughs> giant paper insinuating that because there was gain-of-function research done on coronavirus by people who worked at this lab or who were associated with people who worked at this these labs, that that means that it's very likely. But they, they even state in the paper that there's no evidence to suggest that this outbreak was done was researched in a lab that this strain of coronavirus had ever been researched before it's all still speculation but it sounds fancy and believable you know it sounds credible it's like why are these scientists you know all anonymous even the anonymous aspect of it makes it you know seem like some kind of credible paper so i just wondering what the stuff you've seen about that like what's your take on that and do you have any friends or colleagues who've even been swayed by that where you've had to sort of you know, have discussions with them and, and try to talk them down. I mean, I, I don't know. What's your... Well, I, I consider myself fortunate enough to, to not have anybody <laughs> who, really, who really thinks that, um, that, I, that I maintain regular contact with. But um, to your point about the this this kind of... The no evidence, right? There is no evidence, right? And and, and the funny thing is that the people that distribute, that, that, that circulate these kinds of accusations are all politicians and, and, and political journalists. Virologists and epidemiologists have been pretty unified. I mean, I'm not going to say everybody is in agreement. There's probably some people out there who think it could have been a leak or could have been a bioweapon because, you know, a medical degree does not confer perfect knowledge onto you or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm, yeah, there are people like everybody else, but medical experts have for the most part said that it's, it's unlikely to, it, it's, it's highly, highly unlikely to even have been a leak because uh, of the, the basic conventions of, of research. If, if this lab were to get a sample of this virus, there would be published results about it and it would have been easy, free, you know, easily accessed by people that, have, that are in the community you know, because this is how the research works. Yeah. Publish, publish or perish is the mentality. And so if you get a sample end of something that, that, you're, that you're studying, you publish your initial findings. This didn't happen. 
you know, there, and so the only, the only way it could have happened is if literally like in, in a, in a tiny, tiny window where this virus was supposedly collected, there was an act, there was a leak. And, and, you know, the people that have, the people that have worked that helped set up the lab because it was a joint effort between China's, China's health, uh, health officials, public health services, uh, France was a big part of it. So there's been some French virologists who have said that there's, you know, they, they've seen the lab, they know what the process is. Uh, there's, there's the likelihood of this happening even accidentally is, is astronomically low. Um, and some scientists in the USAID, uh, USAID predict is a, is a, is a public health uh, infectious disease program. And some scientists from this also worked at the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the, 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 the biosafety four level lab. And they've said the same thing that people, the only people who are really considering that this could be a leak are people who have never worked in this kind of a lab environment because the, the stringent nature of security containment in these places is such that, you know, it, it's deliberately meant to be accident proof as much as possible. Um, so the science doesn't line up with it either, uh, and and but they're but they're going to keep they're going to keep hitting at it this particular angle because it sounds to the average person, and you know, the, the, it's all about trying to convince as many people as possible that this could could have happened. It's it's unfortunate that all these insinuations are floating around so hard. I mean, I've even seen people um, like Francis Boyle. And Meryl Nass, um, who I I find you know very trustworthy, their analysis they're they're also insinuating it. But I think when it comes down to it, when you boil it down, the idea that this is somehow some kind of CCP controlled lab where they're doing secret army you know bioweapon research, and that's why you know if it did leak, that's why they're able to cover it up. It just doesn't seem to pass the smell test really at all no. because this no. was a joint international effort. It involved even people from the U.S. government. Even if that is your narrative, it's still a very narrow narrative that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So I guess just moving on from the, the bioweapons thing back to epic times really quickly. It's a strange thing because, you know, on one hand, I could understand maybe why they push so much anti-China stuff. I mean, that makes sense. Maybe they have their own motivations for doing that. But the pro-Trump stuff is just is stranger to me. And it even gets weirder where um, NTDT... Um, what, what did you say it was called? New Tang Dynasty Television. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's still the official name. I think okay. that I think they might have changed it to NTD, but it used to be New Tang Dynasty Television, um, which yeah was is just the broadcast front for uh, for Falun Gong. Yeah, and they actually have a Q and show on their um, YouTube channel <laughs> called The Edge of yeah. Wonder, which I just was really blown away by because for the most part, even though it's very right-wing and fringy, you know, it's no more right-wing than like Breitbart is. But to see something like QAnon, uh, a QAnon program on there was really, struck me as sort of odd. And uh, it's actually popular in the world of QAnon. I've sort of looking into this program, Edge of Wonder, and um, it's it's got some cred in the QAnon movement. So it, it just it's it's awfully strange to me how saturated their media presence is now um, in the Trump era. I mean, I you know I'd, I'd heard things about the Epic Times, but to see them so saturated out there, I can't help but wonder if they are being funded on some level by an alphabet agency or or, or you know where they're getting this extra cash injection from. You know, if it's just from no. some exiled Chinese billionaire 
or whatever. Um, I, I mean, there's even like a um another uh, guy who's like a I don't know if he's a billionaire, but he's you know worth hundreds of millions of dollars named Kyle Bass. I don't know if you've seen this guy. Oh yeah, um, Kyle Bass, who's uh who pals around with Steve Bannon a lot is actually part of this think tank, uh, the Committee on the Present Danger of China. So they do seem to have a lot of cash around them. He in, he in particular has a had has a specific financial interest because he shorted the, the yeah. Chinese yuan. Uh, he finally got out of that position in 2017 after losing a ton of money because he, you know, he was short of yuan because he was expecting the Chinese economy to collapse. So he has a vested interest in, in, in weakening China there. But uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh no! I mean, I would just, I would just throwing him out there because I, you know, if if we're talking about where this mysterious funding is coming from, other than just cultish fundraising, um, I guess I my mind would go to someone like him. But yeah, I mean, well, it, it's a, it's a fair question. I mean, it, 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 certainly the cult infrastructure helped build it up to a degree, but it's it's possible that it's received more. I mean, look, the the the, the joke now is that you know the the Shen Yun, uh, oh, dance God. dance show. Right, uh, which is another Falun Gong production. Like that's their that's their soft power. That's their cultural uh, their cult their cultural apparatus by putting on a sub a substandard dance performance that that also um, at, that has at, a at, tsunami at, at, with the hammer yeah. and sickle in it. Yeah, tsunami with hammer and sickle. A big scary a big scary face of Karl Marx. Like you know, <laughs> jackbooted thugs with hammer and sickle emblems on their on their on their caps, beating up noble practitioners of, of classical Chinese <laughs> culture. Yeah, but the thing about it is, they're able to fund that, and they go around the country. I mean, they're in every time I've been back in Houston, uh, back home for the for the holiday season, I've seen advertisements for Shenyang performances at the local venues. Oh, yeah, I mean, like they're they're touring the country all the time, and of course, the the, the joke is that their advertisements are everywhere, right? That the you, know, you cannot you cannot escape the Shenyang ads. Well, that costs money. And that's so Falun Gong. Is, yeah, that's they they oh, yeah. put that on. Okay, I didn't realize oh, yeah. that. Yeah. I thought they were just oh, yeah. some kind of related group. Well, wow, so that's fascinating. Yeah, no, then I mean, like, yeah, the show. I haven't seen the show itself because you could not pay me to go. You couldn't drag me to go. Um, but from what I understand, there is like explicit endorsement of, of Falun Gong and Falun Dafa, like the the, the spiritual practices of, of the cult. Um, like it, it really is just a Falun Gong propaganda dance performance. And the funny thing is, I actually have a connection. Um, in college, one of the I, I took a class uh, modern Chinese history. This this was not the foundation of my interest in China, but but it was it was a result of kind of challenging the preconceived notions about the country that I was already experiencing at the time because I was doing some shall we say extracurricular reading of uh, of Marxism and, and and communist theory. And the professor that I had was a visiting professor. She specializes in in, in Chinese dance, especially Chinese dance in the era of the PRC. So post-1949, how kind of the, the, the current system integrates the, the valorization of, of ancient culture and how it continues to develop it and, 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 and experiment in new ways. And she got quoted, I think, for a piece in The New Yorker. The, that that and, article is excellent. Yeah, no, yeah. I recommend everyone read that article. Yeah. And, I, and I liked her quote in it um, where she was yeah, just like, this is the opposite of what it's portrayed in Shenyang. <laughs> yeah, in yeah, yeah. She, she very politely, very diplomatically called it uh garbage <laughs> like, right so so emily wilcox i i remember you and i still value your value your input all the time i'll, I'll throw that article in the soundcloud timeline i think people should read it because it's just a very surreal thing and um and it really is like deep rooted in our subconscious from childhood like seeing these shen yun advertisements everywhere so when i found out it was just a fallen gong front it was pretty bizarre 
you know, the U.S. is clearly ramping up this new Cold War. You talked about the military realm. We know that all these exercises in the South China Sea, the propaganda realm is just hyped up every single day. Um, a lot of these talking points are now being mainstreamed outside of just fringe conservative media. You know, I've heard people actually poo-poo the idea of an inevitable war with China saying it's absurd. Uh, the Chinese leadership is is revered and and adored at Davos and Trump actually really loves them and, and capitalists love them. And um, you're, you're ridiculous to think that U.S. capitalists would want to go to war with China. I mean, do, what do you think about that? Do you see war with China as an inevitability, a possibility or an inevitability? And I guess what's your message to leftists here who are continuing to regurgitate just complete misinformation um, in the in the height of this global pandemic about China that's deflecting all blame off of our government? Well, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts about it, so, so no worries. Um, I don't think that war is an inevitability, no. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a distinct possibility. We can't rule it out, and we have to keep that in mind at all times, the catastrophe that would entail uh, when we're talking about this stuff. And, and the seriousness of that should be overriding a lot of a lot of these concerns. Um, as far as the, the, the relationship between U.S. capital and, and China, I mean, people point to Davos a lot and, and you know, uh, think that this is this some indication that, that the, the Chinese Communist Party and, and big capital are these great friends. But, um, you know, this, this is about exploitation, right? This is about taking advantage of a, a foreign labor force. The degree to which they've been able to take advantage has been diminishing over time. And so this is this is the result. You know, we wouldn't be hearing about decoupling from China if capitalists were still able to extract the big profits they were able to in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. It's only after China started growing and started developing its own industry and started and started growing quality of quality of life, mm -hmm. meaning that labor got more expensive because you know that means that laborers need to get more in terms of their payment, in terms of their serve, in terms of public services. So. The only reason why we're hearing about this is because we're in the middle of a moment where some capital is starting to move into other parts of the global south, Malaysia, Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam to some degree. Well, yeah, Vietnam to a big degree. Uh, so this is a moment at which American capital, European capital to a lesser extent, sees an opportunity. And, and for certain sectors of U.S. capital, the, the more rabid, uh, shall we say, sympathetic to white nationalism segments, uh, they see an opportunity to relocate production back to within the borders of the U.S. But that, you know, all the, all the absolutely dishonest, uh, total nonsense about people like, let's say, Tucker Carlson caring about American workers, and that's why they want to bring production <laughs> back. I mean, it, it, it's it's absolute bull, and and we know this because what what are capitalists going to do? Are they going to bring production back, and, and they're going to start paying the workers in the U.S. the same rates they used to get paid, or higher rates than they were paying um, paying Chinese workers? No, of course not. They'll they'll it'll be a it'll be a race to the bottom, and American workers will get paid um, if if they even get paid. I mean, this is another opportunity where, where mechanization and, and uh, roboticization of the workforce can take place and you can automate a lot of the, the stuff that, that American laborers used to do um, and you know save your costs that way. Or you pay American workers less or the same amount. Um, so this is this is not and, and, and then of course, you know, 
this is also a way to kind of drive out migrant labor too by pushing by pushing um, previously petty bourgeois or or whatever whatever terminology you want to use work, workers down into the proletariat and and pushing the migrant workforce back out of the U.S. borders. Right, this is a white nationalist project at the same time as it is a capitalist project. Uh, bringing the production back in does all this, and it also puts the U.S. on a better war footing uh, against China. Because then, if your production mm -hmm. is located outside China, then you can you can build uh, you can build the, the the material you would need to fight a war. Uh, not that the U.S. is lacking in, in war material, but you could certainly build more of it. Um, so it's a it's a disturbing trend. I'm not saying that you know I'm not saying that. Uh, it's not about it's again about exploitation right it's it's the question of well right now big capital wants to exploit american and chinese workers but when the exploitation is no longer as efficient they they they're perfectly happy with going back to just exploiting american workers right mm -hmm. right um and so it needs to be that the conversation doesn't need to be about you know the coziness of, of china with big capital because it's always been an antagonistic relationship for all of the speeches of davos you want to point to um, I, I don't care. It does, like who who cares? Uh, like it matters. It matters insofar as it's interesting to see the kinds of political concessions some some capitalists are willing to make. You know, the the stuff about uh, Taiwan or Hong Kong, China's territorial sovereignty. I mean, you know, that's obvious. But it's also I don't think a bad thing. I don't think it's I don't think it's bad that capitalists have to pay respect to a country's sovereignty. Um, in order to in order to maintain business, it's just a question of whether it's just a question of whether you know the people of China are getting a better deal than they would if they were just totally opening up to foreign capital and and letting the the exploitation just ramp way way up, which they're not doing. Um, the conversation needs to be about engagement and cooperation on the basis of improving the situation for American workers, for Chinese workers, for workers around the world, right? If you know, and this and this was the this was the mild promise of the Sanders campaign. Even though he had his he had his own anti-China uh, hobby horse, he he was kind of a, he was kind of a, a nationalist on trade for a long time. But you know, we need to be talking about making inroads between labor in the U.S. and China. For example, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of resistance to engaging in dialogue between Chinese trade unions and U.S. trade unions because of the same nationalist impulses, but also the suspicion because the trade unions are a part of the, the state as a, as a consequence of the revolution. But there needs to be there needs to be dialogue, right? There needs to be a, a figuring out a better way of, of doing this. There needs to be a, a de-escalation that doesn't rely on the exploitation of any workforce, right? Like there needs to be there needs to be a, a, a sharing of benefits. There needs to be a common understanding that this is what we're going to have to do if we want to fight climate change, right? Because these are two of the biggest powers in the world, and China has been building and building green technology. The U.S. has the most advanced green technology. There's obvious room for cooperation there. There's room for cooperation on a lot of things. And, um, and in the left, we need to be thinking about this in a way that's constructive, in a way that doesn't reinforce these narratives we've been talking about this whole time. Um, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can build these relationships on a, on a good footing, on a, on a pro-labor footing, then people in both countries will benefit immensely. And obviously, if there's a war, the exact opposite will happen. Millions will die. It will be a, a, a catastrophe untold. 
and this goes for a proxy war too. You know, if if the battleground, it doesn't matter whether the battleground is 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 directly between the U.S. and China, or if it's happening in like Venezuela, Iran, wherever. You know, you don't want a proxy conflict either because people will die. Um, right. So you know, we just got to be thinking about these things in, in using the thinking about the broader picture, and thinking about the forces at work, and thinking about the the motives that some actors might have in in advancing these these narratives. Well said. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Ian, for uh, joining us on Media Roots Radio today. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's been it's been great. It, 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 to be honest, you know, I'm still I am still keeping to the the quarantine trifecta for the most part of home, office, and grocery store. So <laughs> the conversational opportunities are limited. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was it was a lot of great insight uh, um, from a perspective that we just simply do not hear. So thank you so much, Ian. It was really, really crucial to hear you. And I recommend everyone follow you on Twitter. Uh, is your Twitter name just IS Goodrum? I'm just looking at your Skype name and I feel like it's the same. It is, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, everyone, everyone check it out. You have really, really great content. You're constantly debunking everything that's going out right now. So please follow Ian, support his work. And thank you so much again, Ian, for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you all again. Really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard today on Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us via Patreon.com. You can go to Patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And if you donate to us over $20 a month, you get access to A Very Heavy Agenda, my documentary film series. And if you donate a little more than that, you get access additionally to Abby's film, Gaza fights for freedom. Thank you for listening, everybody. And be well out there.